along the same line as sexual development, it's hard to imagine my upbringing without the fingerprint of evangelicalism on my identity. So mm-hmm. in, in what ways did you experience the thwarting of your identity in the name of Jesus? Oh, my God. <laughs> How much time do we have? Exactly. Like, what? This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prom. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. So we thought it'd be helpful for this week's conversation to give you a heads up that some of the topics we are talking about are outside of our normal conversations for the CBF podcast. And so we want to warn you that if you're a person that's sensitive to talking about things like sex and sexuality, um, although this is coming from a biblical and Christian perspective, it might be outside of the norms. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Brenda Marie Davies. She's an Instagram influencer, a YouTuber, a podcast host, and author. She has a new book, On Her Knees. Brenda, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, I remember at some point sitting down with a guidance counselor in high school and going over like potential like vocational tracks that I can consider. And I can dare say that Instagram influencer and YouTube were not even concept. <laughs> YouTubers was not even a concept when I was in high school. Uh, so, you know, how, how does one fall into that world and, and, and become an influencer? Oh my gosh. You're just reminding me that first of all, I had a really discouraging guidance counselor. She was so mean. I told her I wanted to be um, a, like move to LA and become a movie star. And she was like, cool. How about psychology? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes. And also I think you articulated it well by saying, how does one fall into that profession? It really was like an act of just being like, well, wow, I did not see any of it coming (laughs) to a head like this. Um, cause I feel like when the social media started, it was very founded in fashion girls and movie stars and that sort of thing. And I just never saw my life headed in a direction where people would be following me so consistently and wanting to know what I have to say. Um, Although looking back, I really wanted to be an actress because I, one, love the art of storytelling. 
like the older I get. And I know that sounds so cheesy, but I just love the art of story. I love telling a good story. I love listening to one. My dad was my formative teacher and how to construct a story. And I just love sitting around watching him entertain a whole room of people and keep them enraptured by his words. So, um, really the thought of like being an actress was using my body and my form to tell a story someone else's and um and i noticed that women in hollywood had a voice and they had finances so they could lend to causes that they cared about and championed and if they saw something that they found terrible or tragic like the meat industry or something all they'd have to do is get on some billboards and make a big fuss and then they would be a leader in in that space. So I really admired all of that. And in a way, it's so beautiful. We could have never conceptualized this kind of idea outside of like um, a Philip K. Dick's kind of novel. But um, here we are, and I'm getting to live out all of these little dreams simultaneously. Well, it, it's funny, <laughs> thinking back again to that guidance counselor conversation, I think, I know this sounds strange, but I think actors and ministers are not that far apart in that experience when people are giving them advice on like what they say they want to be. Because I heard numerous times, not from family, but from like leaders and other people that had influence in my life. Like if, if that's the track you want to go, you might want to have some sort of backup plan just in case <laughs> that doesn't work out or doesn't, doesn't pay the bills. Uh, you know, it, it's funny listening to you uh, talk about, you know, kind of the the rising star becoming an Instagram influencer and YouTuber is a sense of like so many people's careers now are launched out of they have, uh, you know, been vetted and have these followings on social media. And that really bolsters them. And that, that's their audition tape without having to sit into an audition. So, you know, has 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 your kind of rising star and influence in those things open doors that you weren't anticipating uh, to open. Um, absolutely. I, I feel like it hasn't yet opened the doors that I always wanted it to open, but I'm going to start a knock in <laughs> now that the world is opening up again. Cause I tried the traditional route of becoming an actress back in the day. And I still have a lot of passion around that. And my novel that just came out on her knees is something that I believe would serve beautifully for a narrative. Um, so I definitely want to write it in the script form as well. But the side part of that um, was the completely unexpected path that my life took that is actually so deeply fulfilling and I'm so grateful. And that is to help people through their deconstruction process, which by the way, um, is not a word that I had when I began this work. I really began because I had written on her knees and it was a really sloppy, like 700 page version of it. <laughs> and um, it was something that I was trying to pitch to publisher or not publishers, but um, book agents. And it was a fictionalized version of my story because my dad, my, my whole family, my former church, none of these people knew about this wild trampage is what I call it, <laughs> that I had been on this wild sexual exploration, all of the doubt and fears and, and differing thoughts I had about theology and my stance on those things. So I was really afraid to just come out and be like, I am Brenda Davies and this is me and this is what happened and this is how I feel about God. So I fictionalized myself in this character named Allison and I shopped it around to many uh, book agents and I got a couple responses and they said something like, we think this book has great material in it, but there's no audience. And when I went on YouTube and, you know, Facebook groups and just online in general, I was looking for sex positive Christians, LGBTQ affirming Christians. This would have been over six years ago or something now. And I 
to my dismay, found, especially on YouTube, that instead of our church having progressed and made positive changes in these spaces, that all the voices I found that represented Christianity were the whites, primarily blonde, evangelical style, and no hate on that. I am a white blonde that wasn't evangelical. So it was just like watching an old version of myself on YouTube espouse really toxic bits of theology. Like if you wear a spaghetti strap in front of a man, Lord knows what he's prone to do. And you shouldn't be a feminist because then it's an affront to God. And um, my final straw was that I heard a girl affluent living in San Diego calling God her birth control. And she was advising her followers, which were in the hundreds of thousands, that they can pray and trust God with their fertility. And I got so angry imagining the ears that this was falling on, the lack of sex education in our nation, the way that we as women are taught about sex in the church as this oppressive duty. And all of this like rage built up inside of me. And I picked up a camera and started my own YouTube, which I called God is Gray. And um, I'm a very mystical Christian. I truly had a wonderful experience where that title came to me. Even I was uh, battling it a bit because I was like, I can't call it that. People are going to say, God is not gray. He's black and white. And I could hear that echoing a million times over, but I couldn't deny it. I just knew that was the title and it was meant to be confronting and it was meant to express what I truly believed, which is that God may reside in absolute truths and black and white, but we on planet earth are contending with so many gray areas for which the Bible, contrary to what evangelicalism tells you, does not have a clear cut answer to absolutely everything. Um, and then beautifully enough, it went full circle because I built an audience of over, let's say maybe, you know, 50,000 people at that point, And I was able to find a publisher to print this book and I completely rewrote it. And because I had come out as who I am and what I believed. And I told my parents what a uh, sexual girl I'd been. Then um, I was able to make this dream happen and write it as myself and be honest about the fact that it is a memoir. It's me. And I stand behind these, these things. We'll get to unpacking the book here in just a second, but something you just said there really resonates with me. And the, the fact that you felt compelled to write a fictitious version of your own story. You know, it speaks volumes at the fact that the church has pushed so many people to a place that it would be better for them to present uh, an outward facade of who they think we should be versus a, a genuine nonfiction version of who we are. And the fact that we have to kind of hide away um, and, and use fictitious you know, conversations to deconstruct who we are versus <laughs> yeah. having that safe space to really unpack what, what we're dealing with, what we're feeling, the questions we're asking. Um, I think that that really speaks volumes to a lot of people's stories and the fact that you were able to bravely make that transition and then to do so in a public forum, allowing your story uh, allowing what you are processing to to give other people the courage to to do the same. Uh, it's, mm. it's quite remarkable. Thank you. And that's been the biggest honor of all, watching other people enter into their fullness and the truth of who God made them to be and whatever word anyone out there feels comfortable ascribing to that. I usually use divinity or divine nowadays because it's less packed <laughs> in a negative way and and it reminds me of how much more expansive that that entity for lack of a better word and there are really no words to describe it but yeah it's been such an honor to come in that space like i used to feel this anxiety about oh i have to have all the answers and i have to know what to say and 
then I realized that's what all my evangelical pastors had professed and had really been their downfall to say they knew the absolute answers to every burning questions in a teen's soul and um, only to have to admit to themselves years later in the midst of cheating or divorce or death or tragedy that they actually don't know the great answers to the universe that implicitly and that no one does. So I very quickly realized that God is Gray was going to be about me posing questions, offering my thoughts, but not claiming to be an expert on anything and just allowing a safe space for people to ask questions. Because in church, I was never permitted to ask questions without the threat of being alienated or ostracized. My community says... <laughs> ask whatever you want, say whatever you want, as long as it's not abusive or threatening. And let's come in here and have this conversation together. So you have this new book out on her knees, memoir of a prayerful Jezebel. This, this story is uh, a personal journey through evangelicalism, purity movement, and into real life. You wrote, Mind you, the list of things they told us Jesus didn't like were total BS. I mean, things Jesus literally never once talked about in his life, like gay sex, smoking weed, overeating, or loud girls. Every pastor told me Jesus hated these things, or Jesus was delivering this message on behalf of his father, who really, really hated these things. <laughs> as, you, as you look back at the church purity culture of your adolescence, how would you best summarize it? Oh, uh, um, like a two sides of a coin. One would be that it was so beautiful to realize for the first time in my life, this thing that I'd always instinctually known, which that is that divinity did care about me and did care about what I was doing with my life and how I was behaving. And then even that statement right there swings me to the other side of the coin, which is that it was so oppressive. And in that there was never curiosity about how to envelop myself around and within and about divinity and discover these things on my own, like the unwrapping of a gift or just the adventure of life. I wasn't welcomed into any of those kinds of spiritual practices. I was told that I was beloved, that I was made in God's image, but then they told me precisely what God's image was, which was really like a straight, definitely straight, um, married, <laughs> primarily white person. And um, that maybe wasn't explicitly stated, but I definitely came from a background where Jesus was white in all the pictures. We weren't actually told about our history or about the diversity in the Bible. So limiting, I guess, is really the way I would sum up my experience in churches. Limiting, but still with this simmering and beautiful belief that I was worth so much more and I was truly beloved. You wrote, purity culture stunted and warped my prepubescent sexual development like a tree growing through cement. My sexuality became a sin before I had a handle on its power. You know, apart from the interpretation of certain religious groups about sexual development, what, what do you believe are the natural expressions of sexual development? In other words, apart from the zealous religious roadmap that has been laid out for those that grew up in the evangelical church, how does the human species naturally develop sexually? Yeah, this is such a huge and tough question for people that are in church, because I know so many of us, especially of a certain age, were brought up with such um, a very strict, often compassionless view of sexuality, especially uh, when we're talking about people who aren't behaving sexually exactly as we were taught to. And the narrative that's been spun is that we are to stay in this very structured framework of, quote, sexuality, because this is the way God created it. And this is the way God intended it. And concisely, that means waiting until you are married, you have sex with one person till death do you part. And added to that, there was always this 
immense preciousness about virginity. I'm sure we all know this coming from this background, but virginity, whether or not someone has had their, what I now call sexual debut, which really just meant, have you been penetrated by a penis or has your penis penetrated a person? There was no expansive idea. You know, you'll hear someone like Esther Perel or any notable sex educator talking about how we have to expand our definition of SEX because it's not just this one action. Sex and especially sexuality as a larger term encompasses so many different things. Um, but in the midst of this conversation when we were debating, Dr. Tina was telling me about a friend of hers whose husband had become um, ill, fallen ill in the hospital, and, and he could barely move in the hospital bed. And right before he passed away, his wife climbed into bed with him and took off all of her clothes and just laid with him skin to skin. And the thought of that not being sex because it is sexual and it's sensual, even though the man couldn't do his performative duties and our very limited scope of what we've called sex, that really is what it is. It was a sexual, sen sensual connection and, and a heaven touching earth experience for that couple. So if you think about sex in terms of that, instead of get married, like wear a white dress, walk down the aisle, sign a contract and live happily ever after, um, then you have so much more to play with in your idea of what that is and what that means for your life and the, the relationship you might have with your partner, etc. But in order to get people to a healthy version of that, where they, they're not coercive or abusive, the church has so often taught men and women how to both coerce and be coerced by using Ephesians 5, women submit to your husbands. And I'd always heard that verse exactly like this, as if men only have a sexual animalistic desire and women are just to bow to it and submit to it. So the first part of the verse that says, women submit to your husbands, that meant sexually. You open your legs and let them have your their way with you. And then when it flipped to, and men submit to your wives, there would always be a pastor, male or female, with like finger guns winking at us and be like, and that means men, go do the dishes, go mop the floor. And I was like, what on earth? Is that really what sex is? Me just submitting to my husband whenever he wants and he in returns does the feminine chores for me? All of that said, that is ab abusive and coercive. Very easily that could jump into marital rape, which didn't become illegal until 1995 to show you how common that uh, awful narrative was. And coercive sex is never going to be making love. It's never going to be the kind of sex that Jesus would have ordained us to have with one another. And the way we teach our children is by starting young. We have models from the Netherlands and different places that sound like utopias as far as sex education goes, where they have what's called comprehensive sex education, which is what we have in California. It's age appropriate. And you start by teaching girls and boys that there are parts of you that feel pleasure. And that doesn't mean just your genitals. It could be the wind on your skin, whatever. And you pair that with consent. This is my body. This belongs to me. I should never be in pain when someone is touching me. And imagining how those lessons then translate to the uh, person going through puberty and how they're interacting with their peers all the way up into adulthood. This is the way we learn to respect ourselves and honor our bodies and honor the bodies of others as it was truly intended, um, as I believe. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. The Institute for Black Church Studies at BSK launched in August. The launch of the Institute brings leadership to Louisville, Kentucky's Festival of Faiths, an interfaith event that seeks to bring attention to certain issues or topics. This event will be held in Louisville, November 18th through the 20th. This year's theme is the Sacred Change, Central Conversations on Faith and Race. Dr. Lewis Brogdon, the Executive Director of the Institute of Black Church Studies at BSK, is leading this event, and BSK will be among the featured organizations. Specifically, BSK will host a session titled 
black face encounters with black trauma, pain, and nihilism. Learn more on how you can participate at institute.bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Along the same line as sexual development, it's hard to imagine my upbringing without the fingerprint of evangelicalism on my identity. So mm-hmm. in, in what ways did you experience the thwarting of your identity in the name of Jesus? Oh, my God. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> exactly. Like what? Um, oh, just everything about me. I mean, I'm not a quiet girl. I'm not um I'm not a shrinking violet. And there's nothing wrong with being either of those things. It just was never me. And that was supposed to be an affront to the men in church. They're the leaders. I'm supposed to sit down and follow their lead and Um, I'm definitely an egalitarian kind of person. So sorry if that offends anyone, but I think that's biblical too, if you really look at it. Um, And yeah, I mean, besides my personality not being acceptable as a woman, I just always had such a struggle with the sexuality element of it. I was always in musical theater. So I was always surrounded by queer people. And When I first went to this non-denominational Christian church at 12 years old, I was told God cries when you masturbate and that my gay friends were going to hell. I don't know how many Christians will remember, but our little narrative of BS has shifted for the gay community. We used to say for many, many, many decades, being gay is a sin, simply being gay. And now they've shifted it and are acting like it's softer and gentler to tell queer people being gay is not a sin. God made you that way. Just acting on your feelings of homosexuality is a sin. And I know they've said this as if it was like a gentler blow or it was easier for a gay person to reckon with lifelong celibacy and never having a family of their own and never getting to experience the ecstatic lovemaking that they actually desire. Um, so that was always hard for me. And I I found that really painful. And, you know, if we talk about embodiment and actually not separating ourselves from the body that God has given us, that gives us messages every day, my whole body cringed. I felt sick when I first heard that said from platform and in any other circumstance, Like if I was being a little girl walking down a street and there was a dark alley and I had that same feeling, every adult would have said, run. That means there's something bad down that alley, something wrong. But in church, I had that feeling of walking down a dark alley and hearing this message of all gay people are going to hell and they're not right by God. Everything cringed. And I was told to swallow it and continue on because thus saith the Lord, which is the most manipulative statement (laughs) that I could possibly hear at that time. Um, So, yeah, I just felt stunted in every way. And then I also wrote in my book because I just put everything out there that I used to fantasize about being with many men. And this is before I knew about sex. So it was just kissing boys. I had a dream that I walked up to the cutest boy in my high school and I kissed him and then he moved aside and there was a guy behind him and I kissed him and on and on. (laughs) And I just had an appetite for a lot of different experiences and not just in sexuality in all kinds of ways in life. And um, so yeah, to answer the question more succinctly, the evangelical doctrine around sexuality was demanding that I do everything 
exactly like anti-intuitively, whether it be with myself, my behavior with others, or how I saw other people. In the book, you talk about the wheels coming off your sexual uh, purity and identity and your sexual and your spiritual response to it. You wrote purity culture told me I'd be crawling on my knees, begging for forgiveness and ashamed of my sexual choices, but I wasn't experiencing that sort of condemnation at all. Evangelicalism did not properly identify ungodly sex. Take us a little deeper there. Ah, uh, I think this would probably be after I chose to have my sexual debut, which the way my story goes down, well, you'll have to read the book to know. How about that? I won't give it away. But um, I was really amazed when I woke up in the morning after having sex for the first time. I didn't feel smote by God. I didn't feel like less of a person. There's so many purity culture teachers that say you lose pieces of yourself. The You're like a chewed up piece of gum. You're a dirty glass of water. You're a flower that got its petals plucked off. And I just didn't feel any of those things. And it was, it was shocking. It felt like someone had lied to me because frankly they had. And, um, you know, we talk about the darker elements of sex. They are ironically the things that all of our mainline pastors are getting caught with nowadays. Like everything is being brought out into the light. And what is it that in these incredibly oppressive, anti-intuitive sexual environments, there is grave sin happening. And I mean real sin. This is the harm of others. This is the harm of yourself. And that is in the version on the maybe lighter end of the spectrum of Carl Lentz cheating on his wife. And then you have Brian Houston of Hillsong, his father. Um, his father, trigger warning, um, had sexually assaulted children throughout his entire experience as a pastor and his son knew about it and chose not to report it to police, Brian Houston of Hillsong. These are, these are the dark elements of sexuality. And I can't succinctly say, cause I have asked other sex educators if, if this is true, but if sexual repression leads people down these darker paths and that's why these things happen in this setting in particular, but it's definitely a theory that has some plausibility because I, for one, felt completely unnaturally perverted by sex. And when I say perverted, I mean it that way. I don't mean like kinky and fun. I mean that it felt like I was anorexic and I was abstaining from food and sex was on my mind all the time. And even when I chose to have a sexual experience, it was, it was with a stranger that I didn't even know, which I'm not saying is bad in itself, but I am saying it's the antithesis of what I wanted. And I ended up in that situation because of my repressive sexual ethic, because I didn't want to actually engage in or look at the action that I was taking. I just wanted to take an action to free myself from a doctrine that didn't work for many for me anymore. And I believe a lot of people get into that circumstance because they feel trapped by the doctrine and then they therefore have their sexuality perverted in these dark ways because they aren't managing it in health and love. You know, in the book, um, you talk about uh, the, this purity movement. It doesn't just encompass sex, but sexual identity, masturbation, sexual expression, gender roles, sexual positions, birth control, and on and on. As you have identified a few verses of scripture that many of these ideals are loosely based on, um, but who made up the rules uh, that most of us were raised on? Who, who decided what was okay and quote evil, what was righteous and, and what was quote unrighteous? <laughs> well, that's a huge question, but I'll tell you that the first person that comes to my mind is St. Augustine. Many people believe that he was a closeted homosexual. And because of that, his writing is incredibly homophobic and, um, and fear mongering. And what a lot of like mainline evangelical youngins don't realize is that even our concept of hell is from the writings of Dante's Inferno, um, which were then taken by St. Augustine to craft 
this fictionalized version of hell with pitchforks and flames and all of these things, which if you study, um, there's an amazing book by Julie Ferwerda called Raising Hell. And she ended up studying all of the scripture that we have on quote hell and finding all of the holes in it and really making a great case for it not existing at all. So yeah, St. Augustine was one of those people that definitely formed this very puritanical, fear-based, homophobic idea of sexuality and how we're supposed to abide. I think a lot of those ideas then went into Puritan culture and colonization had a huge effect on uh, thwarting people and making them fear their sexuality and even down to restricting how women and men were to dance or what kind of music they were to listen to or how they were to sway their hips. <laughs> These things have gone on for, for centuries and they're not rooted in the Bible. I mean, if we want to talk about sex in the Bible, we can talk about Song of Songs, which is an erotic novel between an unmarried couple just enjoying the hell out of each other's bodies. You know, as, as we think about, you know, those that have created these rules for us, just how rooted is this movement uh, in, in patriarchy and toxic masculinity? I'm sorry to laugh after every question. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they get funnier and funnier. Andy is just like, well, how is it not? But, you know, it's funny because I am from uh, Jersey, from South Jersey, which is close to Philly. And I was raised with this major cynicism. It, like in that region, it's really more cool to like... I don't know, poo poo animal rights people because you find them annoying or like, oh, I just want to eat my cheeseburger and just like brush off any new thought or progressive thought because it offends your sensibilities and just get all cynical about it instead of listening. So that was very ingrained in me for a while. And because of that, a lot of these terms that are brand new to us, especially throughout 2020 and beyond, can be really confronting because they sound like an attack of people. If you're not just listening and realizing, hey, I can remove myself from this word, look at it, dissect it, and figure out how it actually applies and how I can actually do the work to separate myself from being a part of that structure if it truly offends me that much. So with patriarchy, for a while, I avoided even saying it on God is Gray because I knew it would sound like a liberal catchphrase or something. But then when you dissect it, it's like you cannot get away from seeing it every single day and every single element of life. Like I'm in Hollywood. How many there's like three women directors that have been invited to the Oscars ever um, all industry and business led by men, the way things are structured. I read a Marines um, bumper sticker, ironically enough, at Children's Hospital yesterday, and it just said, when there are no other options, we come to destroy the Marines. And I was just like, dang, that is I mean, toxic masculinity and its finest. And if you read even something like Peggy Ornstein's beautiful book, Boys and Sex, um, she's an incredible researcher. And 12 years ago, or maybe 14 by now, she wrote a book called Girls and Sex, where she interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of prepubescent adolescent girls about their sexuality and how it was blooming and, and what they thought. And she, we really learned so much about their sexuality through her work. And people had begged her for years to do one on men. And she admits herself in her forward to boys and sex that she kept not wanting to go into that because she saw men and boys as the ones hurting girls, as the ones being oppressive, as the ones creating the patriarchal system that hurts us so gravely and rape culture and all of these things. 
And then it struck her until these boys get healed, until these men get healed in their sexuality, they will continue hurting us and they will continue hurting ourselves and themselves. And that really manifests into things like the way we send our boys to war. I know many sweet, sweet men from high school who came out of war, very, very different human beings and not just like angry or confronting to others, but depressed or even suicidal. And that is just all a part of this patriarchal system to me. All of these structures are built on this patriarchal idea of men ruling the world. And in that way, not listening to the voices of diversity. You know, when we talk about patriarchy, we're also very, very primarily talking about white men. So the fact that they've been, they being everyone, every voice of diversity has been missing from how we structure our society, how we go to war and why, how our healthcare system works or as it does not work at all. All of these things, I truly believe when you look at them are because we have a lack of diversity. We have a lack of compassion and understanding and all of these things are birthed from patriarchy, which nobody has to take uh, as, as an offense. If you do, you're saying you're a part of that structure. But again, if it offends you, look deeper and figure out how to break apart that structure and honor other voices. Because it's not only destructive to women and, and people of color and Black people, it is destructive to the men as well. All right, I'm going to try not to make you laugh with this next question. <laughs> Good luck. So uh, we've deconstructed a lot in this this conversation, and there's a lot more that we can deconstruct. I wonder if we might do some reconstruction. You know, in in regards, you in many regards, you're you're inviting people to throw out the rule book of their religious upbringing to discover something wholly different. So where did they go for guidance on all these matters, whether sexual identity, sexual expression? masturbation or even sex advice and relationship who has the guidebook rather than the rule book jesus i never suggested throwing out the good book as in the bible i actually have fallen so much more profoundly in love with that text since deconstruction and for me, it is so much more edifying, glorifying, and full of love than I ever had realized before. And I love intellect and science and psychology and all of the practices that teach us and show us how to be the best version of ourselves possible. Even medications that help people with depression or bipolar disorder, anything, these are all tools that, you know, are made by human beings in many cases or conceptualized by human beings, but we are also all made in God's image. So I truly believe that as we continue to grow and move forward as a society, that the Bible strangely stays relevant because it is meant to be timeless and it's meant to be understood in the context that it was written and that there are ways that it can guide us as we move into the future. And that is for me very importantly by not taking it literally, because even if someone was saying or claiming to take it literally, you would really have to show me how that could possibly be true because I know there are many scriptures that we are deciding to throw out as evangelicals. Um, but the call of love, like I am so often accused of leaning too hard into love. And the immediate accusation is, is all based on a slippery slope fallacy. Like, oh, if I affirm a gay person, then I'm going to have to affirm you know, any person that tries to have sex with an animal, etc. These things are not based in truth. And this is no one is asking for acceptance of everything. That is not love. Love is exactly as it's detailed in the Bible. It's patient, it's kind, does not boast. But it also holds accountability. You know, if you see a friend or your lover really damaging themselves in some way, it is an act of love to 
make them aware of that, to be present, to do an intervention on someone if need be. So this has nothing to do with just allowing everything and thinking everything is okay. And if you watch the God is Great channel, as a matter of fact, you'll see that there are a lot of things that I call out that are deeply not okay. And they're all church-based and about church abuse. So for me, we have far, far, far too much gotten away from love. And this is why we're in the circumstance that we are, because we were taught, you know, that horrible phrase, it's not in the Bible, it's just a phrase of um, love the sinner, hate the sin. I always used to think since I was young, it still has the word hate in it. How can we hate an element of a person, especially something that we are now acknowledging is part of a person from birth and say that we hate it. It's never going to go over well. Um, I don't know. There's so many different directions to take this. I feel like I got lost. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, for me, um, I'm thinking less of like, I I've never read any of your work or in the book of, of ever asking people to throw out the Bible, but in a sense, I think the the rule book that so many of us, especially that grew up in the evangelical tradition, the rule book has been, the, you know, these why I kiss dating goodbye or, mm -hmm. you know, the true love waits campaign. You know, these were the rule books that we were told that we go to for the answers on, on all these things. So how, how do we define apart from that? How do we define what healthy sexuality looks and feels like? You know, the Bible never necessarily proclaims to be a guidebook for all of these um, aspects of identity and sexual expression. Um, it's not intended for that purpose. So, you know, how do we define healthy sexuality and, and what that feels like and what that looks like? Yeah. So this is what I would call sexual integrity. And that is exactly how I would describe a true um guidebook for quote biblical sex or christian sex that actually edifies and does good one of the main tenets of that would be consent mutuality all parties want to be there all parties are enthusiastic i love when we add enthusiasm on top of consent and it all goes back to love yourself um, love your neighbor as yourself love god those three elements of love interplay when you are having sex that truly honors yourself and your partner. Um, the way to get there for sure for me is about education, absolutely. And on top of comprehensive sex ed, it is also about doing the really hard work and I hate to say that it's hard, but it is. It definitely took me over 15 years to really release shame, pain, and fear away from our sexuality and our sex lives. Because in the Bible, it says the enemy is the author of fear, not God. So when you're in the bedroom and you're experiencing fear, something is triggering you. Even if you're on a path where you're trying to sleep more casually with people and you feel like, oh my God, what if I go to hell for doing this? What if God hates me because I am a man sleeping with a man? Really taking the time to say, you know what? I am going to sit back and observe these thoughts and observe these pieces of me and really realign my sexuality and my divinity and my spirit so that I can have truly whole and, and beautiful sex. And the way that journey started for me is that I read Linda K. Klein's book, Pure. And towards the end of the book, she writes that at a certain point, she'd realized that God was always outside of her bedroom. Like she always separated that sexual act from the presence of the Holy Spirit. So she took a moment to pause and say, get in here. I want the Holy Spirit in this situation with me. And I took a cue from her and I began doing that. And one of the very first or the first experience I had with that mentality was that I had been in such a tramp age phase for so long that I did really like disregard sex or I was just mindless about it at different times. And if I was going to regret it, I would regret it later. So I had a date with this guy who ended up being a, an F boy. And 
right before I invited him into my bedroom, I realized, Brenda, you know, he's going to leave you on red. You know, this isn't going to go anywhere. You know, you're going to feel disrespected by this person. And I thought, okay, instead of feeling guilt and shame about that, because I already am going to do this dumb thing, (laughs) no offense to myself. um, I took a moment and said, all right, God, I'm going to do this Linda K. Klein thing. Get in the bedroom with me. And for me, that was the last time I behaved in that way, because when I finally decided, and it wasn't, I mean, a literal thing, like if if you're a Christian and view things the same way I do, like God is omnipresent all around. You can't actually ask that to stand outside of your bedroom, but you can have sex that is disembodied. You can remove your mind or your heart or your spirit or different elements of you to keep yourself safe from the dissonance that you feel from the guilt or shame that you might feel or the fear of hell or all of those things. And that's why a lot of purity culture survivors will have sex and then cry in the aftermath or have a panic attack afterward, because that's when, again, your, your, your soul and your head become realigned and you're like, Oh no, what have I done? I'm ashamed. So it takes the hard work of dissecting those thoughts, of researching them. Please go by on her knees. I really wrote that so that people would see how I dissected these lies in my spiritual life and came back into alignment for myself, which is what I call sexual integrity. Now I am not, I'm open to being a sexually active person before marriage. It's a stance that I feel now. I don't feel a call to abstinence at all, but I do feel an absolute call to sexual integrity, which is making sure that my mind, body, soul, everything is fully aligned and present in sexual situations and that I am honoring the Imago Dei, the image of God in the partner that I'm choosing to engage with. And that is the way I see it happening. And a lot of this too comes down to embodiment. I have wonderful friends, Jamie Lee Finch and Tara Tang, who are practitioners helping a lot of purity culture survivors as well, get realigned within themselves and re-embodied because we were brought up, we were brought up and told that our heart is deceitful, that our flesh is evil. And the ironic thing, Andy, is that I was blown away because I was researching and saw that the original term for Satan actually translates to the divider. And it struck me like a ton of bricks that that means that if we are divided, if your wife is having checked out sex because uh, you banged her over the bed with Ephesians 5, you are not having holy sex. She is divided. And it, it, it is in its most truest sense of the word satanic to divide someone to ask someone to divide themselves to ask yourself to divide itself in order to get into a physical experience and the tough part about embodiment which is beautiful too is that your body remembers everything even if your mind forgets even if you try to put it in another compartment and forget about it in your heart your body will take account of things that have happened to you, traumatic experiences, ecstatic experiences. And again, if you are separating yourself, having a satanic experience, so to speak, your body will get numb. And the church taught us how to numb it. And it's not right. For the last question, let's go right there, which is um, this conversation within the church for for many, if not most churches, the idea of outsourcing conversations about sexuality was an attractive idea for the 1990s and and 2000s, but churches are beginning to recognize the repercussions of this mistrust now. Um, I think many churches realize that sexuality is an important conversation they need to facilitate, but they, there are several buts. They, they, don't know uh, where to start. They don't know how to fully encompass the depth or number of topics that need to be addressed, or they don't know the right direction to point people. So what's your advice for, what's your advice for church leaders that might be listening to this about where to begin that conversation within the church? Hire me. I'll come. (laughs) 
Um, I really actually, um, I haven't had the capacity to do it with this book, but I would really love to, at some point, write a sex ed curriculum. I studied under the OWL program, which combines at some points, um, the spiritual aspect and just sex ed in, in its truest form, like the condom on the banana type of version that you're accustomed to. Um, but to answer the question, really, I've been thinking so deeply about doing something like that because I don't know what to tell you. I don't think that resource exists yet. And when you're talking about outsourcing, Pam Stenzel comes to mind. And oh my goodness, was that woman toxic as hell. She would come in with not only pseudoscience, but outright fake science. There's so many pastors and preachers who say, you'll run out of orgasms if you orgasm too much or women will lose, you know, sensation for their husband if they use a sex toy. These things are outright lies. And if the church is going to tell its congregation something about sex, it truly needs to be fact-based. And that will not only serve your congregation, but it will serve yourself and the health of your church ultimately because when you lie to people when you give them these false points of science and life comes up against that or true science comes up against that and they're confronted with the fact that you lied to them then all of a sudden they have to go to other sources to find that information which i absolutely do there's no church there's no teacher in the christian space that i trust to teach me about sexuality i currently lean on completely secular even if they may be spiritual women and men themselves or people themselves um, I would never peek into a church podcast to get the answer to these burning questions because they really are often built on lies. So again, I'm sorry. I can't be like, oh, I got an amazing teacher for you, but this is why I half joke and say there is a gap that needs to be filled. And one of my goals and thoughts is to absolutely try and fill that space because there really is a way to live in, in congruent and beautiful, holistic, sexual health, not divided and as a Christian. And um, yeah, it's just not being presented because it's also controversial. I, for one, don't see enough evidence in the Bible that we need to be waiting for this wedding day. And I know that would make people uncomfortable potentially, because for whatever reason, the church has been structured in a way that controls and polices people's sexual behavior and how they are doing it and when. I propose not rules and regulations and a structure of how to do everything, but a way to find yourself, to excavate your internal desires, even with kinks, for example, they develop before you're six years of age. So if you have a weird fetishy feeling about the smell of leather or the feeling of dirt or something, and your brain fires that into something erotic, there's something out there for everyone. And it's not your quote fault. And it's not weird because these things develop as children. You know, this is why we can't tell people that we are inherently sinful and, and disgusting and our hearts are deceitful and our flesh is evil. Cause then we feel our desire is over always after us, always coming, demolish us and destroy us. This is absolutely not true. Sex is meant to be playful. I mean, sorry to draw this to everyone's mind, but just imagine the act of sex. It's hilarious. The sounds are hilarious. The aftermath and cleanup is hilarious. It's funny and delightful and a source of play, a source of connection and love for people. And it can truly be a heaven touching earth kind of experience just done with that attitude. And I really think, unfortunately, until churches decide to pivot away from policing how people behave and instead invite them into fullness and exploration and excavation of them their own selves and their own spirit and the way they commune with divinity, um, we're going to stagnate in this place where the church continues to die and dwindle because we're really not offering answers. We're offering a sexual ethic that's built on fear when we should be offering a sexual ethic that's built on love. That's love of God, love of self and love of others.
If you want to stay connected with Brenda, check out godisgray.com. Join the throngs of people following her on social media. The book is On Her Knees, and you can purchase it wherever books are sold. Brenda, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your willingness to talk about critical things essential to who we are as humans that far too many people of faith try to stay away from. Thank you, Andy. Thank you to everyone who listened. Love you. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.